0: with just some of the men who are in this study um, and every week we're just having testimonies and the whole point is that we just want to be regularly reminded of how God is changing us by the gospel and so uh, at times we'll probably begin opening this up and having more and more people so you'll probably eventually be getting that phone call from me and I'll say hey on Sunday what you doing and uh, I'll invite you to come share how God is changing your life also and challenging you in the gospel. If you were not here last week, I encourage you to go listen to uh, last week's sermon. uh, Merely, we're beginning a new series, and it's called The Five Solas. The first message was last week. I gave a longer explanation of of the purpose of this series, Um, but we're in the Solas. Uh, The Solas are uh, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory alone. And. Well, what we saw is that these solas became explicitly clear 500 years ago during the Reformation. And these solas were brought about to clarify the gospel. And so often, when these solas are worded, and if you look at my wife and, and Andrew, they have shirts I was supposed to have one, but somehow mine was not sent here. Uh, so they have the shirt, and actually it reads it right on it. Um, But often when we describe the solas, we say it like this. The gospel comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone. That's how we talk about them. Last week, we looked at scripture and how that God's word alone is the authority for our lives. Today, we're going to be looking at grace. And my hope is that as we look at these solas, there would really be lenses that we would use as we read God's word that we would better understand the gospel and that we would better see its beauty and taste its glory. So 500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church taught that salvation is by grace. That's good, right? Like we want to teach salvation by grace, but it's only good if we define grace the way the Bible defines grace. If we were to define grace on another way, then that would not be a good teaching. And so a common way 500 years ago that the Catholic Church would teach uh, the gospel, and it's still the way they they teach the gospel today, is they would say it like this. God does save by grace, but that grace is given to those who are prepared for it, who do what is in them to be fit for grace. Or another way they would say it is, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. So what was being taught was that God will give grace to all who put forth effort. Your effort by itself is not good enough, but your effort plus the grace of God is good enough so that hopefully you will be able to obtain the holiness that God offers and reach salvation. So the formula for salvation would be your works plus God's grace equals not equals salvation but equals the ability to have salvation or to earn salvation one theologian said it like this uh, the, the catholic church pictures grace like a spiritual red bull and i like that this this analogy has stuck with me by ourselves we're a little bit lazy Um, we're kind of tired what we need is a pick-me-up we need that extra boost we call that grace we grab our red bull energy drink of grace we drink it so that plus our combined works will be able to potentially make us holy red bull grace enables you for the possibility of achieving salvation now this type of teaching still uh, evident in the catholic church and it seeks to creep into Protestant churches today. Now, oftentimes, the way we will hear about that here, like in, uh, in a Protestant church, is when we start talking about who is a Christian. That person, that person is a Christian because they read their Bible. That person is a Christian because they pray. They gather with the church. They're a Christian. That football player, like he pointed up, he's a Christian. So what we do is we often point to people by their actions and therefore define their status before God on the basis of what we do. And we do that oftentimes with our own selves saying, well, I don't know if I'm a really good Christian because I haven't read my Bible. As if our status before God will vary based upon our obedience and our performance. And so it's something that we wrestle with today and when we try to earn our status before God, when we try to earn our salvation, there's really two things that will end up. You will either end up full of pride, thinking about how good you are, which will automatically make you look down upon others. This is like the rich young ruler that comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do? I mean, he's he's good, he's done everything or if we're more honest with ourselves, we'll end up in absolute despair because we will see how hopeless we are and we will see that our efforts and this red bull of grace never actually gets us closer to salvation. Now this is what happened to Martin Luther. I wanna read a quote by him. He says, it's true. I was a good monk and kept my orders so strictly that I could say if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery knew me, would bear me out of this, would bear me out in this. For if I had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death, what? With vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, You didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and troubled. What was happening? Luther was literally driving himself insane, trying to be good enough. You see, Luther understood the teaching of the the Roman Catholic Church very well. He says, well, I need to try hard, and if I try hard, God gives me grace, and those combined will get me salvation. I'm going to do everything I can. He would stay up for weeks, not sleep, confessing every sin that he had. In fact, the priest would say, stop confessing. You've done enough. He says, no, I haven't. I have a longer list. And he would keep confessing. He would do whatever it took to show he's putting forth the effort. He wanted to earn his salvation, But rather than ever moving into assurance, he moved into despair. And so today, what we're going to see is that salvation is not by grace plus works. It's not the Red Bull of grace, but it's by grace alone. And that's what we're going to see today. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read 1 through 9. And so I encourage you to stand as we read this passage. One thing we do is here we stand when we read God's word simply as a way of reminding ourselves of Scripture alone, the authority of God's word. So here it is, is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, so that no one may boast. I'm going to pray. Father, we come to you now. We know that you're good. We know that you're merciful, steadfast in your love. You are full of grace. You are perfect in every way. Your holiness is brighter than the brightest star. Your strength is greater than the mightiest storm, and your wisdom is higher than the highest mountain. God, you have given us a text today in Ephesians that clearly portrays the gospel. God, I pray that as we study this, as we read this, as we read your word that has been inspired by your spirit, that we would rejoice in the gospel this morning. That I pray that all of us here would be full of excitement and joy because of what you have done. Lord, I pray that That any confidence that we have in our flesh, in ourselves, in our works, in our efforts would be destroyed by the word that you have given us, God. God, I know that our flesh is going to want to reject this message or parts of this message. Our flesh wants to scream against this gospel of grace alone. Father, I pray that you awaken us today to it. I pray that we see your goodness. I pray that we marvel and rejoice in your goodness. Lord, may we taste the joy of of the gospel through grace alone and Christ alone today, God. May we see that. May we rejoice, God. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ. In your wonderful name, amen. You all may be seated. Um, we broke this, well, I broke, I broke the sermon up into two parts. Um, there's verses 1 through 3, and then there's verses 4 through 9. So we're going to look at the first section. I'm going to kind of give you a summary statement. Then we're going to go through three points, and then we'll go into the section, second section. I'll give you a summary statement, and then we'll look at three points there. So here's the summary of verses 1 through 3. Every person is born a spiritual zombie pursuing death and deserving wrath. That's, that's how we're starting this off. That's the summary that we have here. So we're going to look at who we were. Well, according to verse 1, it says we're dead in the trespasses and sins. So we are Dead. We're born sinful. We're born spiritually dead. We're born as the walking dead. We're born as spiritual zombies. We should know this very well. We see it in more TV shows and movies in this, um, in this decade than in any previous one put together. What we see is in Genesis... Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. And being that they're made in the image of God means that they love to worship God. They love to obey God. They love to rejoice in God. They love to do all that God has called them to do. But what we see is that through the temptation of Satan, they have decided to no longer worship and praise God, but to disobey God. And so they take the fruit that he commanded them not to take, and they become like Pinocchio, who runs away from his maker. And the act of disobedience that they do, basically is a way of saying to God, I don't want to glorify you. I want to glorify myself. I don't want to worship you. I want to worship me. So at that point, we see that they become spiritually dead. When they're spiritually alive, they wanted to praise God. They wanted to worship Him. They wanted to follow Him. But spiritual death is the act of not desiring to worship God, of not loving Him, of not rejoicing in Him. And so at that moment, they became spiritual zombies. And because Adam and Eve stand at the forefront of all of humanity, and we all come from them, their spiritual dead DNA has passed to every one of their children, which is you and me, and every single person born of Adam. This means that we don't sin and then therefore become sinful, but we are born sinful, and that's the reason that we sin. You're not perfect until you're like age 4 or 7 or 11 or you just pick an age and then it's like, oh man, now I screwed up. We're born sinful and therefore we sin. So while we're made in the image of God, we do not want the glory of God. While we do, as the psalmist says, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, every intention of our heart is only evil all the time. So that's where we are because of sin. So what, what, what we did, what did that look like? Well, if we go on, he says, verse 2, in which you once walked. So the word walk is going to be Paul's way of saying, this is how you lived. This is what life looked like. And then he's going to describe what we did. Well, we followed the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. So rather than follow God, rather than follow the one, the kingdom of God, we're now operating within the kingdom of the world, which is characterized by sin. So, so what does that mean, that we follow the world, we follow after sin? Well, if we keep going, in verse 3, it says, we are sons of disobedience. Actually, that's in verse 2. The Spirit does not work in the sons of disobedience. What do sons do? Well, sons act like their parents. And so, we're told here, our parents are disobedience. This means everything we do is in disobedience to God. Every action that we take. So what does that that look like? Well, Paul goes on, and he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So to be spiritually dead, to walk in the world, to walk after Satan, to be a son of disobedience, is to live for the satisfaction of the desires of our flesh and our body and our mind. That's, that's how Paul is describing us here. It's that every intention of our heart is only evil all the time. Now this is where um, Christians, and especially unbelievers, say, hold on, hold on there. Not, unbe- not, not, not all unbelievers are bad. I mean, I know many good unbelievers. They do really good things. In fact, they do things that we see in the Bible, like take care of the homeless, take care of orphans, help widows. How is that bad? And admittedly, those are really good actions. Those are are great moral actions. But first, um, I'm not saying that every of those actions are evil. And that every, um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what God's word is saying. So it's important. Don't just take what any pastor says or any preacher says. We want to look at what does the Word say. And we could go into Romans 3 where he gives this long description of where he quotes from the Psalms and he reads on the evil of humanity, on how every intention of our hearts are bent on evil. Now the fact that not every single one of us before coming to know Christ is not Hitler or a baby killer is what we call common grace common grace is what god gives to all of humanity it's in this world and it's the fact that not everyone is as evil as they could be the fact that there is common grace is why we can be civil to one another is why we can still do nice things for one another is why we have things like the boy scouts who help little ladies walk across the road and and do community projects like those are great things and we should rejoice in those things But just because we're not Hitlers and baby killers does not mean that we're good. It's not what that means. You see, even a morally good life is one characterized by disobedience to God because God doesn't look at our outward appearances, but he looks at the heart. And if our hearts are corrupt, meaning they do not love him, then no matter what we do on the outside, it's still considered sin. If I gave you a glass of water and I poured poison all in it, I said, "Do you want this? It has poison in it." You would say, "No." It's been contaminated. Although it looks good, it looks like a clean glass of water. We wouldn't want it because it's filthy on the inside. If you go to funeral homes today, you can look at coffins. Coffins are made like really well today. Have you noticed that? Like it's it's nice, and they look really good. But on the inside, they're holding just a decaying set of bones. They're nasty on the inside. And what God is saying is that's how we're born. We might look good on the outside, but every intention of our heart is evil. So even if we do those things that are morally good, it's still an act of rebellion because it's not done for the glory of God. And whatever's not done for the glory of God is done for the glory of man. And so because of sin, we do not please God. In fact, what we read is that we do not want to please God because we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And by saying that we're in our trespasses and sins, we're united to them. We're in them. They're in us. There's this union with sin that we have that we're born with. Just as prison escapees do not kind of show up at the police station and turn themselves in. Like, they don't want to do that. So we, in our sinfulness, do not want to come before God and please him. But actually, the Bible goes further than that. It's not that we just don't want to please him. It actually says we cannot please God. We cannot please God. After all, what do dead people do? nothing if you're confused on that there's a cemetery about a mile down the road encourage you to go and watch what happens they don't do anything because they're dead like paul's not trying to be like creative here and and maybe like throw a curveball by using the word dead he's letting us know we don't do anything good and we cannot please God. Now Romans 8 will clearly illustrate this. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh. So the, the, the mind that is, is unregenerate. The unbeliever is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. And then he says, indeed it cannot. It cannot. Paul is being very clear. We are dead in our sins. There is nothing in us, there's nothing about us that is pleasing to God. So, what we deserved, verse 3, it says, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, by using the word nature, he's saying, this is who we are. So, to be dead in our sins and trespasses is to have a nature. That is sinful a nature that is dead a nature that brings us under the wrath of god because we are dead in sin every thought every action everything we do is repulsive to god it's it's so offensive it's as though you and i are the actual ones putting the crown of thorns on the head of christ pushing the thorns in his brown, were the ones taking the whips and whipping him with the cat of nine tails, taking the spike with the hammer and driving it through his flesh. Now the problem is, is when you and I reread the gospel, we often read it like this. I can't believe the Jews and Romans would do things like that. We distance ourselves from, from what we read and we kind of read it like that's what they did. Man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Like I'm good Morally. Like, God's glad to have me on his team. But those guys, I mean, they were sinful. But what we're supposed to do as we read that, We see this is a picture of humanity apart from the grace of God. We all are in rebellion of the rule of God, of the kingdom of God, of the Son of God. And so who are these children of wrath? Well, if you look at verse 3, among whom we all once lived. So he's saying, to the church, this is you, Before grace, this is you. We all once lived. And then he says at the very end, like the rest of mankind. So he's like, this was you, and so is all of mankind. Apart from the grace of God, you're dead in your sins, which means you follow the world, which means you follow Satan, which means you're a son of disobedience, which means that every desire, thought you have is repulsive to God, and you're under his wrath. And to be under the wrath of God means that we deserve the punishment of hell. We know that justice demands uh, when crimes are committed that there be a punishment. If if we had a judge and he did not punish the murderer, we say he's unjust. Throw him off the bench. We don't want that judge. And so God is the perfect judge. And he can't look at our sins and simply say, Well, I'll just kind of wipe them underneath the rug. They're not that bad. And if sin and if punishment is always determined by the authority offended, the higher the authority, the greater the punishment, when we sin against the most high supreme authority, God, then the punishment is hell. And hell is the death of our miserable zombie lives to the miserable death of eternal pain. Hell is where horror movies become children's stories hell is where god is present but only his invincible wrath is experienced as it crush as it crushes us like a giant weight for all of eternity never relenting this is the picture paul wants us to have and it's not pretty we're not to be like reading this and be like oh this is fun this is the picture that he's wanting us to see as we go through verses 1 through 3. He's saying, this is what it looks like not to be a part of the grace of God. This is how we're born. This is where all of humanity is. And so if I was to summarize, I would say, because we are born, we born spiritually dead, we we're unable to obtain life, unable to please God, unable to want God, and therefore under the wrath of God. And so what, what Paul has done is he's he's setting up verses 4 through 9. He wants us to see how beautiful the gospel is. And so he's doing it on the backdrop of the blackness and darkness of sin. Which if you were to go to a jeweler and you were to buy a diamond, then the jeweler would take the diamond. He would not then take you outside, hold it up to the light of the sun, and say, do you see how beautiful it is? But rather, what he would do is he would take that beautiful diamond, he would place it on a black velvet cloth, and he would shine lights upon it so that as the lights hit it, you would see against the black velvet the beautiful prisms of the diamond. And it's only upon the black velvet Does the beauty of the diamond truly stand out? And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's laying the blackness of our sin down, the blackness of our condition, and what we deserve, so that as he's now going to lay the gospel on top of it and highlight it, we're going to see its beauty and its glory and that we'd marvel at it. And so we'll go to section two. I'm going to give the summary, and then we're going to break that down as we go. Here's the summary. God... Out of his eternal being of grace, delights in saving us by grace so that he would forever lavish his grace upon us. So that's a lot of grace. So you can kind of see where we're going. We're going to talk a lot about grace. The title is Grace Alone. So the first part, what God did. If you begin verse 4, but God. We don't really need to go any further than that. That's the gospel, just so you know. Those two words are some of those beautiful, breathtaking words in all the Bible. So, this is what Paul has done. We're dead. We're a decaying heap of spiritual nastiness. We don't want God. We run from God. We deserve the full unleashing of God's wrath. But God! Like that, that's how he's moving us here. God intervenes and makes us alive. God, God saves us. Now, isn't that shocking? Yes. It's shocking. You're like, no, it's not. I'm a Christian. I'm so inundated by it. We have to read this as he's wanting us to read it. Like, aren't we dead? Isn't that the point of verses 1 through 3? We're dead. Did our condition change? Is there a missing verse? Is there like supposed to be another verse, like verse 3.5, that somehow got ripped out? That something changed and all of a sudden God said, oh, actually, these people aren't so bad. Did, did something happen? Did we resuscitate ourselves? Did we regenerate ourselves? Was there actually something we did that all of a sudden God said, Wow, actually, man, Timberline, I want them on my team. They look good. I want them. No, that's, that's not what we have at all. Verse 5 tells us when he made us alive. When we were dead in our trespasses. There's no missing verse. We're dead, we deserve hell, God intervenes. That's but God. This rules out Red Bull Grace. This rules it out. There's no effort that we put forward because Paul underlines it and says we're dead. So we're dead, there's nothing that we did to somehow appease God, to somehow become acceptable, to somehow deserve any type of of, uh, love or grace from him we did not take the slightest inclination towards him because we're dead. In fact, if anything, in our spiritual deadness, we're running from him. Verses 8 and 9 rule out any type of mindset that says we earned, we moved, we did anything that deserved God's grace. Look down at verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing." clarification right there go on to verse 9 not a result of works so that no one may boast just as jesus called the decaying lazarus to come out of the tomb so god has transformed us from spiritually dead decaying corpses to spiritually alive god exalting children just just pause there Now, how often when you're reading the book of Ephesians or going through Romans or Galatians or these books that just give the gospel in such clarity, do you just stop when you read but God? That's the gospel. We deserve hell but God. He intervenes. Not because we deserve, not because there's something in us, but simply because He's gracious. I encourage you, when we read the Bible, don't read it just to finish. Don't read it just to mark off the box on the Bible reading plan. Read it to change. Read it slowly. Ask questions. What does this mean, but God? That's the gospel right here. So what happened? Verse four, God is rich in mercy. Verse four, we see, because of the great love with which he loved us, Verse five, made us alive together with grace. So what we see is that God has this grace. He's He's rich in mercy. He has great love. Now, real quick, um, I want to define mercy and grace because I think sometimes we're not always clear on what these are. So you can write these ones down. They probably should have been in your bulletin, but they're not. um, But they're on the screen. So here it is, define mercy. Mercy defined. God's goodness is, given to those in misery and what do we understand because we're sinful well we deserve the wrath of god we're a son of disobedience we're dead in our sins and trespasses therefore we're miserable that's how paul's painting this picture so therefore every action that god takes towards a sinner is one of mercy so mercy is those god's goodness given to those who are miserable so what's grace then Well, grace is God's goodness given to those who do not deserve it. And because we are spiritually dead, because we are sons of disobedience, because we follow the world, follow the prince of the power of the air, we do not deserve his goodness. In fact, we could go on further and we say we deserve the opposite. In fact, you could add that to that definition. God's goodness is given to those who do not deserve it and actually deserve the opposite. And so, God, and so therefore, just so you see the connection there, um, mercy, every act of God's mercy is also an act of grace, because if every act of God's mercy is to sinners who are in misery, because they're sinful, they're undeserving, so mercy is also an act of grace. And every time God God gives grace to those who do not deserve it, he's giving it to those people in a miserable plight. Therefore, every act of grace would also be an act of Mercy towards him. You just kinda of see that connection. So we see God has mercy, love, and grace. But these are not tools. Like I have a I have a shed behind my house and I, I keep tools in there. And I have a hammer and a level and a screwdriver and a saw. God didn't say, well. I'm going to intervene here. Let me go out to my my shed behind my throne or whatever you want to call it. And let me go get my hammer of grace, my tape measure of love, and my screwdriver of mercy. And now I can intervene. Like that would mean grace, mercy, and love are are kind of things outside of God, things that God uses, things that God has created as a means of of meeting our needs. But, But what do we actually see? God being rich in mercy. Mercy is not that thing he goes gets. It's actually who he is. In 1 John we read God is love. And as we go throughout the Bible, what we see is that God is also gracious. And so these are not things outside of God. The gospel is God being God. I hope you see that. This is different than other religions because they have gods who then do things to save or to or we have to appease them somehow. But what we have here in Christianity is a God who is merciful, who is gracious, who is loving. The gospel is the natural outworking of who God is. This isn't a foreign thing for God to say, man, i gotta do something i never would have done no he is gracious loving and merciful for him to act gracious loving and merciful is for god to act in his very nature this is uh this is why luther and the reformers responded so violently against the roman catholic church for distorting the gospel they weren't just slightly modifying the way we're saved they weren't just messing up one aspect but to distort grace is to ultimately distort the god of the bible that's why they were so violently against it and violently i don't mean like they attacked but responded this is why we are to stand so firm today on grace alone when we do not budge on these topics on scripture alone grace alone faith alone, Christ alone, glory alone, because on these things, if we distort them, we distort the God of the Bible. Listen to uh, one theologian named Van Hooser. What a cool name, Van Hooser. Isn't that fun? It's fun for me, like, as I read it. every Every time I pick up the book, I read Van Hooser. I'm like, that's, you have to be smart if your name's Van Hooser. So he said this, Grace alone should not be construed narrowly as a matter of salvation only, but should be seen as the very definition of who God is. Grace is the way in which God extends himself to the world so that creatures can come know him and love him. He went on to say, Grace is not simply the content of the gospel, but the overarching framework of its communication and reception. So what he's saying is, is that god is gracious everything that god does is gracious and from cover to cover of the bible is grace it's a communication of grace it's a communication of god and so on a side note there um, many of you are military Uh, Some of you here today may be looking for a new church. Many of you are military, meaning you will one day move from here and you will be looking for a new church. And I wish I could simply just say, man, just go to any church and they're going to preach the Bible well. But what we see in the first century and what we see in every century is there's false teachers that are trying to corrupt the gospel. So we know, unfortunately, not every church is preaching the gospel that comes from Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. We know that's not happening. And so that then means when we're looking for a church, we have to use these solas as kind of a means, a grid in a sense, of looking at them and saying, do they preach Scripture alone or do they add something? Do they preach grace alone or is it grace alone plus some works? We need to look at their teaching and so i encourage you the day that you move be looking forward and we want to help you actually make that move we'll actually come alongside you help you locate the church or several churches prior to you ever moving because we want to come alongside you that way In fact, i would say never move until you've already found the church or narrowed down that search of tr- that search of churches this is the most important thing you can do when you move is make sure you know where you're going to be worshiping with who you're going to be gathering with And in our next point, I think it becomes more clear. So, how God did it? God did it by grace. We go to verse 5. How has God made us alive? Verse 5: even when we're dead, so we've done nothing, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, how did you do that? By grace, you have been saved. So, what is that? Like, what is that? Like, someone says, what do you mean by grace? And then all of a sudden you're stumped, and you're like, uh, uh, that's a good question. Like, what is that? What did God use? What is grace that he saved us? It's actually not a what, but it's a who. To, see, to say that we're saved by grace means we've been saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God. And in fact, in Galatians, which, please be reading Galatians in four-ish weeks, we're starting the book of Galatians. And uh, we're going to be looking just at that book going through there. In Galatians 1.6, when Paul's referring to the gospel, he says the gospel is the grace of Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus' grace. So a few moments ago, I just read a quote that said everything in the Bible is meant to communicate the grace of God. That's it's. Grace is who God is, and everything about the Bible is communicating the grace of God. So now we're saying Jesus actually is that grace of God. So if that's true, we would expect at this moment when when Paul is saying you've gone from spiritual death, by grace you've been saved, to somehow direct our attention towards Jesus, wouldn't we? I mean, we'd expect something to come along to we know that Jesus is the grace of God, understanding this grace, and that's actually exactly what he does. Look at verse 5. Made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. Raised us up with him. With Christ. Verse 6. Seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see what he does here? He's explaining what it is to be saved by grace. You've been made alive with christ you've been raised with christ you've been seated with christ you're now in christ now wait a minute verse one you're dead in the trespasses and sins right our union is with sin with the world with satan but now there's been a break god has intervened now we are in christ see to experience god's grace of salvation is to be united to Jesus. Now, that makes sense if we actually think about it because Paul has gone through great detail to say, we're dead, we can't do anything. So if something is going to happen to us, it's going to be because someone else does it to us, right? There has to be something, someone acting on us. And because we're spiritually dead, we're unable to respond to God. Therefore, God sends his son Jesus to die on the cross, pay the punishment of our sins so that we would be made alive alive with him raised with him and seated with him this rules out red bull grace like there's nothing that we did and then god added something to it but it's all on what jesus did everything about our salvation is about jesus christ he comes dies the death we should have died He absorbed the punishment you and I should have received on the cross. Jesus bears the avalanche of God's wrath that would have forever crushed us, and he absorbs it, satisfies the wrath of God, so you and I could be made alive with him, raised with him, seated with him, now on the heavenly throne with the Father forever. One author says it this way, All that you contributed to your own salvation was a sin-bloated spiritual cadaver blind to God's glory and dead to his will that God inexplicably chose to enliven and to love. Salvation is all by grace alone. It's what Christ has done for us and then by God's grace, he's united us to Christ so that his life becomes our life. So that all that He is becomes ours. Romans will say that we become co-heirs with Christ. So now when God sees us, He sees us the same way He sees His Son. The amazing thing is, the same way He loves His Son, He now loves us. Because we're in Christ. That's the grace of God. That's what He does for us. Now, In this quote, so we'll go to the next point: why God did it. In this quote, he uses the word inexplicably, like God inexplicably chose to enliven and to love. Now we don't know why God chooses some and doesn't choose others. I didn't just do that here; like it's not that this side's chosen and you're not. Um, But he doesn't. We we don't necessarily. What's the basis of that? We don't know that. We don't know how he determines who he saves and who we don't know that at all. Scripture never tells us that but we do know why he saves we're given that we do know why he saves and in verse seven we are given a response or a reason for our salvation so if you look at verse seven you have the word so that and when you see in the bible the word so that or the word for or the word therefore you're getting an explanation and here we're getting a purpose statement. So God has done this. God has saved us by grace so that. So what we're about to hear is a reason why he saved us by grace. Why did he make us alive, seat us with Christ, and raise us with him? Why did he do all that? So that, and then he says, in the coming ages. So that refers to the return of Christ and everything after that. So eternity. Just sum it up that way. He's going to show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's what He's going to do. So this is what He says. God has poured out His grace on us so we'd be made alive forever with Christ and forever experience the grace of God in Christ. So God grabs us out of our casket of death, unites us to His Son, raises us with him makes us alive with him seats us with him on his throne and the goodness doesn't stop like that's good right like oh you've been saved great and then he says i'm not done giving you grace right now now for all of eternity i will shower my goodness my kindness my grace on you through jesus christ it never stops it's what we call forever grace so here's, that's the grand eternal purpose that Paul's giving us here. He's like, you were dead. God saved you. You want to know why? Because he always wants you to see him through Jesus Christ. He always wants you to praise him through Jesus Christ. He always wants you to experience the grace of him through Jesus Christ. So two questions. Does that sound boring? God says, I want to forever lavish grace upon you in Jesus Christ. But now think about it how do we talk about heaven and the new heavens and new earth how do we picture it well, sitting on a cloud playing a harp that only sounds so fun or maybe we're a giant choir and if you're like me and you don't sing very well you're like great giant choir maybe bowing down the whole time just whatever your picture is that we get thoughts like that right i mean i'm not alone have any of you had a thought like that ever Okay, there's a few nods, so I'm not alone. And I'm guessing maybe, maybe you've had weirder thoughts than that, too. Maybe you can come share those with me. I would love to know what some of your weird thoughts of heaven are. Um, we can exchange weird thoughts of heaven, maybe. We're not actually given a lot of detail of what it looks like in the new heavens and new earth. But here in this picture of the gospel, is Paul communicating any level of boredom? Is he communicating that I've given you everything which has made you alive, that now you can once again be in the very purpose that God has made you originally, in the image of him, that we would praise him, and that we would, we would experience his grace and his mercy forever. And that's not going to be boring. It's going to be amazing. His kindness will never cease. You will forever experience the grace of God in Jesus. Forever. And that's not going to be boring. You're not going to be sitting here in three million years going, okay. Is there anything else? (laughs) Like three million years of the grace of Jesus. Like that was cool, but what about the next three million? No, because God's eternal and infinite. Therefore, his kindness and grace in Jesus is infinite. We will never wear it out. Isn't that good news? Every day, we will be in awe of God through the grace of Jesus every day. Every day. Second question. Does that salvation sound temporary? Is this salvation, the way he's talking, the explanation that he gives in verse 7, does this sound like something we lose or that we remove ourselves from? Is God communicating that his gracious act of saving us is not supposed to give us assurance. Like People struggle with assurance all the time. Catholics do not have assurance because they're on this Red Bull grace. Well, I got to work hard and God gives me some grace and hopefully together combined we'll make it. Mormons do not have assurance. They will keep knocking on those doors hoping that they prove that they're good enough to one day enter into the gates of wherever they want to go no works-based salvation has assurance because if it's based upon you you can't actually have assurance that's why martin luther in great clarity is like i was working myself to death and never did i have assurance but is that how paul is describing this here at the end of this are we to say well that's pretty neat i mean god saved me made me alive United me to his son Jesus. I'm now treated a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I'm actually seated with Christ on his heavenly throne with the Father. Going to be lavished forever with the grace of God. But maybe I'll lose that. Maybe I'll slip back into death. But we've been made alive. We were dead. The answer is no. He is not giving us any reason to think that if we know we have been saved by the grace of God, then, we, then there is not assurance for us. That doesn't mean we're always going to feel that assurance. That's kind of a different topic. which we don't have time to get into that today. But we know when we come to God's word, we fight our doubts with the truth of God's word. And there's assurance in God's word by grace we've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life our status before god has never been based upon our performance our status before god is because of the grace of jesus we're not seated or we're not we're, we are now seated with jesus on the throne and everything that he has we have god didn't adopt us bring us into his house now say prove to me that you're my child so i'll keep you here That is not grace. Rather, he saves us, makes us his child, all on the basis of the grace of Jesus, not on our basis, which when we get into Galatians chapter 3, that's exactly what that will answer. I want to ask you, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Do you know the grace of God? Have you believed in this gospel maybe you maybe you've heard the works-based gospel a long time the red bull grace you just got to work hard and your efforts plus a little bit of god efforts together you just might make it there maybe that's how you've been taught or maybe that's how you've been functioning maybe you know that's not true maybe if i was to ask you do you believe in grace alone of course i believe in grace alone do you live that way of course not you ever feel like that like you know the truth but you're just functioning not acting like that I encourage you if you're, if you're functionally not acting that way or if you've never experienced the grace of God I, I encourage you repent today confess that you are a sinner and believe that Christ has come and experience the goodness of God experience the eternal blessing and goodness of God's kindness towards you in Christ Jesus right now and that will never end I encourage you to believe in him today. Confess your sins. If you are here and you are a believer and you do know that salvation is by grace alone, I encourage you to praise God. It's so easy not to praise God for this and take it for granted. It's so easy to just go into the ritual mundane of of Christianity and be like, yep, grace alone, Christ alone, okay. Those are cool things. We can even make a t-shirt out of it. We have two of them today. There were supposed to be three. But let's pause and praise our God. Let's pause and rejoice that the goodness of God in Christ Jesus will never cease. He Never turns off the faucet of grace on us through Jesus. Upon realizing that salvation does not come by works plus grace, Martin Luther began to explain the gospel like a wedding. This is what he said. I I think think this is up here. It might be small. It's a little small. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The the soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's. While grace, life, and salvation will be the souls. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's, and bestow upon him the things that are hurt, bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? You see the beauty of the gospel of grace alone? The bride's sins no longer destroy her they've been swallowed up in christ she now possesses all that's christ all of his righteousness he has given her his righteousness all that she had all that he has is now hers she has gone from a prostitute to a queen as she lives she'll become or she will grow more queenly meaning She'll act more like a queen as she grows and understands her role and what has been given to her. But she will never be more of a queen. Her status, um, her life and actions will simply begin to reflect her status more and more. And so because we're saved by grace alone, we can rest in the fact that we have now been made forever alive with Christ. And this life will struggle with sins, but we will continue to be made more and more like Christ. Our performance will not determine our status. Our status determines everything. Jesus has done what we could not do. And now we are promised to forever experience God's immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you look at the top of your bulletin, just so you know, there's a main point that's there every week. Just if you ever didn't know that, the main point of the sermon is always at the top of the bulletin. Grace is God's unsought and undeserved gift that he delights in lavishing upon unresponsive souls to the forever praise of his glory. That's what he does. That's the gospel of grace alone. Let's pray. Father, Father, may we be changed today. May we be simply just in awe of you. In all of your grace, in all of your mercy, in all of your kindness, in in all of your love, that God, you gave everything. You gave your Son so that we'd be saved. God, I pray that whatever is in our hearts right now that's trying to push against this message, that whatever's trying to deny the truth of your scripture, that your spirit would just bring that to conviction and that we'd repent of that right now. But may we gladly rejoice that our salvation is by grace alone. May we gladly rejoice. May we see the necessity of it. May we rejoice that we're saved, not by our works, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not tasted your goodness in Jesus, that they would confess their sins today, that you would regenerate their hearts right now, and that they would praise you, and that they would experience you and taste your goodness forever now. God, we thank you for your grace. May we never take for granted your grace. May we never take for granted your grace, but may we ever, forever praise you. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, There was a question asked, but we're just going to answer that on the blog because we're we're a few minutes late. Um, But I just want to encourage you, as you go out, be in awe of the gospel. Be in awe of the gospel and just praise God for it. Next week is Faith Alone. We'll be in Romans 3. So if you want to do homework, Romans 3, Faith Alone, that's where we'll be. Um, but I just encourage you, be in awe of the gospel. There is no greater news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to pray, and then we're dismissed. Father, we, we love you. We love you. And we thank you that salvation from beginning to start is solely a work of yours and not ours. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for saving us when we do not deserve it. And God, may we be so overwhelmed with your love. God, may that love continue to fill us, and may we be bold and so delight in telling others about your grace. May we be unable to stop talking about the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, God, make us bold missionaries at our workplaces, in our homes, to our neighbors. God, this is the greatest news. There is no greater news. Father, we thank you in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful day.